Well, hey, brothers, this is Didact, and this is Didactic Mind, episode 104, World War Now. A very warm welcome to all of my Podbean subscribers, a very warm welcome to all of my site subscribers. If you have not already subscribed, please make sure that you hit the subscribe button, either in Podbean itself, or subscribe to the email list on the website. And you can always get to that at the sidebar of the website itself. There's also at the bottom of every post a uh, dialogue box that you can fill in. And that way you will be subscribed to my MailChimp subscriber list. And you'll never miss a new podcast, a new post, a new upload of any kind. Uh, please also make sure you subscribe to my Telegram channel. It's a private Telegram channel, so it cannot be found via regular search in Telegram, but it's the Didactic Mind Telegram channel. And the invitation link is in the biography of my site. It is also available in the body of the post and in the comments. Uh, not in the comments, in the, in the uh, what's it called, the, the, the description box of the podcast itself. Uh, it's a great community. I mean, I have to say, I really like the, the way the Telegram channel has shaped out. It's not a very big one. It's you know, 132 subscribers as of this moment. And yet it has a lot of the old, really seriously, like the OG crowd from the Didact's reach days. I mean, back when I was still on Blogger, um, people who were reading my work back then are active participants of this channel. I mean, we're talking about Techie Dude, Lost Redoubt, Kapios, uh, WB, you know, guys like that who've been around for years and years and been reading my work, uh, following my work uh, for, for all of that time. It's really cool to interact with them. It's a very freewheeling discussion. We've got new guys coming in who contribute and there's a lot of back and forth on a lot of the posts. It's a, it's very respectful, don't get me wrong. It's very respectful, very lighthearted, very kind of uh, fraternal. It's very much a, a band of brothers type of environment. And it's just a good place for a, a bunch of guys to hang out and shoot shit about politics and various other topics. And of course, there are plenty of pictures of cats with rifles, literally combat courts, to keep uh, the, the rest of us occupied. Uh, it's a clean channel for the most part. There's no spicy memes or pics or nonsense going on. Uh, I do try to keep the war porn off the channel. I mean, in the sense of pictures of corpses and dead Ukrainians and burnt out vehicles. I mean, there's some of that, but you know, dead people, that, that, that doesn't really show up on the channel because I try to keep it uh, relatively sanitized. But I do offer up a lot of commentary on current events and news. And of course, at the end of every day, pretty much, unless I'm really exhausted, I offer up a 10-minute, uh, roughly speaking, uh, usually no more than 10 minutes, uh, summary of the day's events and some analysis of my own, which seems to go down pretty well. So be sure to join the Telegram channel if you haven't already. I do police it pretty thoroughly, so there are no spammers, no, no idiots, no 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 leftist trolls, no LGBTQ type nonsense going on. Uh, it's just a, a simple men's community, although we do have a couple of women and even, I think, an Orthodox priest, <laughs> seriously, uh, in, among the channel membership. So it's pretty pretty interesting community. Um, well, this, this is the return of the Didactic Mind podcast after quite a hiatus, and that's essentially due to some, you know, very positive life changes on my part, but things that have kept me very, very busy for the last couple of months. And 
I've been meaning to speak on this subject for some time, but I just never quite found the time to sit down and do it. And today, in the wake of the latest news, I think it's high time I found the time to talk on these subjects. Uh, if you haven't been keeping up the news, let me run through a quick summary of what's been going on for the last uh, month or so. Uh, towards the end of September, in, in the sort of the last 10 days of September, the Ukrainians launched some successful counteroffensives. Actually, they started launching those offensives in the beginning of September in uh, Kharkov region, and then they launched, um, well, okay, they actually started launching massive counterattacks in Kherson region, and then in Zaporozhye, and then uh, they were just stopped cold in Kherson in early September with tremendous casualties. Um, then they tried to attack through Zaporozhye region and likewise were stopped cold with a you know, much smaller force. Then, towards the end of September, they decided to uh, throw about, well, estimates ranged between five and 20,000 men. I, I would say it's easily at least 10,000 men with full vehicles, armor and everything, NATO direction, uh, meaning NATO command and control, toward Kharkov. And there they met with considerable success. And the reason why is very simple. As it turned out, the Russian defensive lines were very, very thinly manned. So the Ukrainians were able to punch through and basically force the Russians back in an organized retreat. I mean, the Russians did not flee, contrary to Western media narratives. They did not flee in a disorganized fashion. They did not just abandon all their equipment and their men and just get the hell out of Dodge. No, that didn't happen. What actually happened was the Russians realized that they couldn't defend everything. So they pulled back out of the areas of Kharkov, which for them wasn't really a key sector anyway and pulled all of their troops back to more defensible lines along the Oskol River. So they abandoned places like Izium and uh, <clears throat> pulled back their troops uh, to Krasny Liman and Kupiansk and defended there for a while. And then they abandoned Kupiansk and eventually Krasny Liman as well. And have now kind of more or less left the Kharkov region completely and have almost entirely moved back to Lugansk and into Russia itself. So they're now, they've withdrawn in more or less good order. So the Ukrainians for the first time since 2015, the first time in more than seven years, have managed to launch a successful offensive. And the reason they were able to do it was basically because of direct NATO intervention. I mean, NATO keeps saying, the US keeps saying, it's not on the ground in Ukraine. It absolutely bloody is. I mean, it, this is just an absolute outrageous lie on NATO's part, on America's part. American troops are directing Ukrainian forces on the ground. So are NATO troops. Mercen foreign mercenaries are fighting in very large numbers within the overall official command structure of the Ukrainian military. We know all of this for a fact. Uh, the Western media just won't report on it, but if you follow my Telegram channel, you'll see the data, you'll see the evidence, you'll see the, 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 the nature of the war unfolding, and you'll see lots and lots of foreigners, uh, mostly Americans and Poles and Brits, dressed up in Ukrainian uniforms with Ukrainian flags on their shoulders. Uh, but they are fighting on Ukraine's side. Now, these offensives have come at a tremendous cost to Ukraine. If you add up all of the losses that they've suffered from the Kherson and Kharkov uh, counteroffenses, 
they have suffered on the order of between 20 and 30,000, 30,000 dead and wounded. And let me just take a moment there to un help you understand that. A division is, depending on how you count it, about 15,000 men. Ukraine pitched a full two divisions worth of men into Kherson and lost the majority of their fighting forces there. They pitched at least another division in the direction of Kharkov and lost a minimum of 5,000 men there. They have wiped out three divisions worth of combat power, essentially rendered three divisions combat ineffective for the sake of recovering abandoned villages, mostly abandoned villages and a few large towns which actually weren't very full to begin with. So the Russians, on the other hand, have lost at most in the high hundreds uh, of troops. The total number of dead in the entire SMO so far, according to the Russian Ministry of Defense, is less than 6,000. And that was uh, according to the announcement made by Sergei Shoigu right after Putin announced partial mobilization of 300,000 men in Russia. What does that mean? I mean, is that number accurate? I believe it is, actually. Because independent open source uh, attempts to validate these figures have generally shown that the Russians aren't lying. They really have not lost much more than about 6,000 men. Whereas the Ukrainians, their numbers are staggering. I mean, truly just horrific. It's easily 190,000 dead and seriously wounded. That is the kind of uh, casualty rate that they're taking. And it is just horrendous. And that is not even counting the number of foreign mercenaries killed and wounded on Ukraine's behalf, which definitely runs into the high thousands. Uh, not quite 10,000, probably not yet, but definitely high thousands by this point, given the, the sheer number of NATO personnel being involved and the number of uh, NATO so-called advisors being involved. Now, in uh, the, the days leading up to September 30th, the four breakaway, well, four occupied regions of Ukraine, formerly of Ukraine, uh, as the Ukrainians would say, occupied. The Russians would say liberated. And I very much come down on the Russian side. I am very much pro-Russian. Uh, but if, you know, pick whichever phrase you want, it is what it is. They all held referendums. And the results were overwhelmingly in favor of accession to Russia. Uh, Donetsk voted like 98 plus percent for reunification, Lugansk 97 something percent, uh, Zaporozhye like 94 percent and Kherson about 87 percent. I was actually surprised at how strong sentiment was in Kherson because Kherson is the most, I would say, Ukrainized of the four regions. But even there, there is very strong pro-Russian sentiment. And you have to understand that these regions were part of Russia for a very, very long time. Now, Odessa is a Russian city. Odessa is obviously still under Ukrainian control. But Odessa, Nikolaev, Kherson, uh, Melitopol, Mariupol, Donetsk, Lugansk, all of these cities were once Russian and were very much considered part of Russia's territory way back in the day in, in, in Tsarist times. Uh, Odessa was founded under the reign of Catherine the Great. So this notion that these are Ukrainian cities and this is Ukrainian land and the people there are Ukrainians. Well, no, the people there have 
long considered themselves to be ethnic Russians. They just live under Ukrainian rule, and the Ukrainians have systematically oppressed and brutalized them for 30 years, and they're, they're a bit sick of it. So inevitably, they decided to throw their lot in with Russia. So on September 30th, the Neo-Tsar, Vladimir Putin, it was his birthday yesterday, I'm recording this on October the 8th, so his birthday was October the 7th, 70th birthday, he signed into law, uh, or he signed treaties, like 400 pages worth of documents. He signed 400 pages worth of documents saying that these four territories are now part of Russia. And that worked its way through all of the Russian constitutional system. I mean, it had to go for a vote in the Duma, which voted 100% unanimously to uh, recognize the accession of these territories. And then through the Russian constitutional courts, which said, yes, this is a constitutionally binding and, and correct you know, uh, thing to do. And then it went back to Putin himself, who signed a, an amendment to the Russian constitution, which said, these four regions are now part of Russia. So as of October 5th, those regions are very much a part of Russia. And that's just a fact. Now, in his speech to uh, the rest of the world on September 30th, what did Putin say, which caused so much uh, outrage and consternation and all the rest of it? He said, essentially, that these regions are now part of Russia and we will consider them to be Russian and we will not, uh, we will not ever give these, these regions up. And, you know, he's right to do so. Uh, but what exactly did he say on the day that he signed the treaties? Well, this, this is what caused quite a lot of uh, what you might call ass pain among the Western elites. And this is essentially where what has brought us to the current situation we're in, where um, the world seems to be under the threat of nuclear war. Now, what exactly happened that brought the situation about where you have the entirety of the Western media marching in lockstep, basically saying there's a madman at the helm of Russia and he's threatening to bring nuclear death and destruction to the entire world. Well, for that, you have to go back to the speech that Putin gave when he announced the partial mobilization, the address to all Russian citizens. This is what he actually said, and this is direct from the Kremlin's website, and you can go to that website and read it for yourself. It's uh, towards the end of his speech. It's the last, uh, basically, four or five paragraphs of his speech. Here's what he said on September 21st, 2022. They, meaning the collective West, have even resorted to the nuclear blackmail. I am referring not only to the Western courage shelling of the Zaporozhye nuclear power plants, which poses a threat of a nuclear disaster, but also to the statements made by some high-ranking representatives of the leading NATO countries on the possibility and admissibility of using weapons of mass destruction nuclear weapons against Russia. I would like to remind those who make such statements regarding Russia that our country has different types of weapons as well, and some of them are more modern than the weapons NATO countries have. In the event of a threat to the territorial integrity of our country, and to defend Russia and our people, we will certainly make use of all weapon systems available to us. This is not a bluff. Now, I happen to know, because I followed along with the speech a little bit in Russian, this is a pretty accurate translation. 
And indeed, Putin did not say anything unusual. From a Russian perspective, all Putin was doing was reiterating Russian nuclear doctrine. What does Russian nuclear doctrine say? It says that there are only two situations, and this, by the way, goes back to 2014. So December 2014, Russia's new nuclear doctrine went into force. That doctrine says very clearly that Russia may only use nuclear weapons in two situations. One, when the territorial integrity and survival of the Russian state is threatened by conventional attacks from another party. Or two, in response to the use of nuclear weapons by another party. Uh, sorry, not, yeah, by nuclear weapons by another party. And it's not just nuclear weapons, it's also weapons of mass destruction. So a CBN type attack, chemical, biological, nuclear. In those events, and only those events, Russia may use nuclear weapons, which means that there is no first strike policy in Russia. It's important to understand the United States has never, ever agreed to a no first strike policy, uh, at least not since the end of the Cold War. The United States has always reserved to itself the right to strike first. This is very different from US nuclear doctrine. So why the hell then is the Biden misadministration talking about using nuclear weapons against Russia? Why are they ginning up all this fear and hysteria? The answer is because they want to force a nuclear confrontation and they believe it's one that they can survive. This is terrifying. And this is the reason why I wanted to make this podcast to, to talk about the situation we're in. Because whether you understand it or not, whether you agree with it or not, it doesn't matter. The fact is, we are in the middle of a world war. It doesn't matter whether you think that just because bombs aren't flying overhead or missiles aren't landing in your neighborhood, you're not actually in a world war. We are in a world war, and it's high time we all recognized it. This war is between the empire of lies, the collective West, which used to be the good guys back in the day. They were the good guys and now have completely transformed themselves into a bunch of absolute lunatics, at least at the political level. A bunch of completely disconnected, totally unified elites who believe firmly in this sort of evangelical uh, orthodoxy of Western hegemony, of this so-called rules-based world order. The, the rules-based world order is nonsense. The rules are whatever the United States and its allies, which really just means the United States, says the rules are. And those rules can change at any time. The U.S. is not bound by its own rules, doesn't care what it says in the past, doesn't care what precedence it sets. It just does whatever it feels like in the name of its own interests. This is very much first-order thinking. They never think through the consequences of their actions. They never think what could happen next. And that's exactly why you constantly see U.S. policy failing no matter where it's applied. If you look at the United States today, it is a wreck. It is a hollowed-out shell of what it used to be. And the reason why is precisely because the United States never thinks through the likely consequences of its actions. So you end up in a situation where American policy is completely erratic, completely all over the map. But the result is a world war. One side, the empire of lies. The other side, pretty much everybody else. And increasingly, the rest of the world, the, the rest of the global south, the rest of the world outside of what Putin, I think, correctly called the golden billion, they understand that the Western world is 
directly opposed to their own peace and security and happiness. The West does not want the rest of the world to follow its own development models. It does not want the rest of the world to be independent of Western hegemony. It wants to rule over everything. The West just wants to rule over everything, the same way that the Soviets did back in the Cold War. It's the same situation, the same ideology, just in a different form. Uh, whether, whether you call it communism or neoliberalism, it really doesn't matter. It's the same basic desire to remake the world in one's own image. And we know where that comes from. It's satanic. It's just that simple. It's Satan himself uh, controlling the puppet strings. But we're dealing with a situation where the people in charge are completely delusional. And worse than that, they don't know what they don't know. They don't understand the other side at all. Their level of understanding of Russia or China or India or like any of the other great powers in the world is virtually nil. They have no capacity for figuring out what's going on and where these powers derive their strength and what it takes to fight them effectively. They just don't get it. If you look at the Western economies, war is a matter of economic power. It always has been. Uh, if you look at World War II, that's exactly what transpired. If you look at World War I, that's exactly what transpired. It was industry and production capacity that determined the outcome of war. Back then that was true. Today it is even more true. Russia's industrial capacity is unaffected by sanctions. In fact, the, uh, Putin held a meeting, uh, I think just this week, with the members of his economic council to figure out what um, was going on in the Russian economy. And the economy minister told him, uh, and all of his economic advisors told him, yeah, industrial output has uh, gone back to what it was back in 2021. It's reached the same level. We're still dealing with uh, very soft consumer demand, but overall the industrial economy has largely recovered. So from Russia's perspective, the economy is doing very, very well in spite of unprecedented levels of sanctions. I mean, that is, that is astonishing to, to see Russia's economy recover so quickly. It's amazing. But if you look at the West, they still think that they can win this war in spite of all of the evidence to the contrary, which says Europe's economy is collapsing. Europe is deindustrializing. Germany is deindustrializing at a very rapid rate. Businesses in the United Kingdom are shutting up shop at unprecedented levels. We've never seen this level of closure of small businesses before. Something like 250,000 of them closed up in 2022 alone. That rate is unprecedented in the history of the United Kingdom. We're seeing rapid drops in living standards all across the European continent. I mean, in Czechia, for instance, normally the schools are heated in winter. I mean, it's, it's autumn right now. Temperatures are definitely dropping. It's definitely a lot colder. In schools around about this time of year, they would switch on the heating and students would be able to sit in relatively warm classes, heated to about 22 degrees Celsius. Right now, apparently, the, the maximum temperature allowed for heating is 17. And outside, it's like 14, 15 degrees max. So students in the classes are sitting there wrapped up in blankets, desperately trying not to catch a cold 
while trying to learn. Now, I assure you, it is much more difficult to learn and pay attention and be alert when you're cold than when you're hot. I've lived in very hot countries before. I know what it's like to sit in very, very unpleasantly hot conditions and try to do things or, or move around or get things done. But it's easier to live in a hot climate than it is in a cold climate. That's just the truth of things. Cold kills far more people than heat ever does, regardless of what the global warmest tell you. The reality is a cold climate is much more dangerous to human life. This winter has every indication of being very severe for Europe, and it will become much more so because they have cut themselves off from their energy needs. They've cut themselves off from very cheap, effective Russian oil and gas. And they've done it because the United States told them to do it. The key beneficiary from all of this is the US of A. The Western world is contracting and destroying itself to benefit the US. We're dealing with very, very different ideologies here. On the one side, you have what is really effectively a terrorist state at this point. And I don't say that lightly. When I say, when I call the United States of America a terrorist state, I'm not saying that because I dislike Americans. I may be pro-Russian, but I'm also pro-American, very strongly so. And that's not a contradiction in terms because I'm very much in favor of the American people. That's what I mean by pro-American in the same way that I'm pro-Israeli. I believe very strongly that the American people have the right to determine their own destiny as a nation. Problem is, America is not ruled by its own people. It's an occupied country under foreign leadership. And that explains much of what you're seeing right now, where the imperial power that is the United States has completely lost all connection with the needs and the wants of the people. The American people are not represented by their government. This also helps explain the actions of the American leadership. If you believe that Joe Biden was legitimately elected as president, I don't know how you can persist in that belief in the face of the evidence we're seeing now. Joe Biden is not acting like a legitimately elected president. He's essentially a puppet, uh, a walking zombie. And you can see the results of that vacuum of leadership at the top in the way that the United States is acting right now. Take the destruction of Nord Stream 2, which is, or the Nord Stream projects, which is the reason why I refer to the US as a terrorist country, as a terrorist government. That is an act of nihilistic terrorism against one's own allies. Now, the US government says it didn't do it. Well, I, I mean, look, that's ridiculous. It's, it's idiotic. They absolutely did do it because they're the only ones who would benefit. They have the means, the motive, and the opportunity. All they're lacking is prima facie evidence saying, yeah, you know, they did it, right? But anyone with any sense can see that the only people who actively benefit from the destruction of the Nord Stream pipelines are the elites in charge in Washington. It's not the people of Europe. It's not Russia. It, neither the people nor the elites in Russia benefit from that destruction. Russia invested billions of dollars in building those pipelines, and they were apparently exceptionally sturdily built. I mean, the... The nature of the pipeline construction is such that apparently each pipe is 4.5 centimeters thick. 
just the steel alone is 4.5 centimeters thick. It's reinforced with concrete, you know, on the outside. And it's strong enough, the, the pipes are strong enough to take the full weight of a, a really large ship anchor crashing down on top of it. Uh, so this is not, you know, some idle construction. This is a tremendously complex and uh, expensive construction designed to bring cheap Russian gas from Russia, from the Russian gas fields to Europe, to Germany in very efficient, very timely manner. And German industry is keyed to using that energy input effectively. That is the source of Germany's competitive advantage against the West. The only people who stand to benefit from this are Americans. Well, really the American elite. The only people with the active means to destroy these pipelines are the American military. We know that American ships and helicopters were operating in that exact area where the pipelines were destroyed back in June and July. We know that America has the technology necessary to send submersibles or even divers in highly pressurized suits down to those depths to plant explosives. We know that only serious explosives could breach those pipelines in those ways. And even then, they didn't actually do a very good job because apparently the pipelines are just punctured. They're not actually broken. So the damage is repairable, although the Russians are saying one of the threads of Nord Stream 2 can be salvaged. Uh, it, is, it is still intact and we can still send gas through it. Uh, both, both threads of Nord Stream 1 are outright you know, gone, but the pipes themselves are only punctured. They're not really destroyed. So we can send divers down there. We can seal it back up. Potentially, we can do something to reroute the gas. Uh, the major problem is really corrosion of the pipes due to seawater, which would be a very big problem. But the Russians reckon this can be done. They reckon that there is a way to restart Nord Stream. It'll just take months to years, potentially. And that is the nature of, of a, a terrorist attack that failed. On top of that, we now have news today, and this is kind of why I wanted to get this podcast out, of um, the attack on the Kerch Bridge in the Crimean uh, Peninsula the, along the Kerch Strait. So a truck blew up um, while traveling along the Kerch Bridge itself. Killed three people. Uh, the people caught up in the fireball. Uh, I've seen the video evidence. It is pretty horrific uh, of, of the actual truck bomb exploding. And the explosion resulted in shrapnel and flaming debris hitting a fuel train that was traveling on the railroad bridge, which is right next to the road bridge. And that train caught fire and damaged lightly some of the sections of the rail bridge. But it already looks like only one span of the road bridge was destroyed uh, and really only some sections buckled and fell into the water. The actual support beams are unaffected. So the Ukrainians have already claimed credit for this. The Ukrainian SBU has said, yes, it was us. Um, but then Mikhail Podolyak, the, uh, you know, one of the interior ministers, I think the interior minister of Ukraine, uh, wrote another tweet which kind of tried to imply that the Russians blew up their own bridge. It's like, you know, how stupid can you be? I mean, 
the, the Ukrainians really have found a new category of stupid. It's like you have stupid, regular stupid, really, 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 really stupid, attacking Russia in winter stupid. Then you have full retard. Then you have potato. And below that, even now, you have Ukrainian. I mean, that's how stupid this is. But that's the nature of this war. The United States is actively supporting terrorists, and it's not the first time either. If you know anything about the Syrian conflict, for example, you'll know that the United States claimed to be fighting ISIS in Syria while actually actively supporting ISIS. And you'll know that the United States actually funded opposing groups fighting each other in Syria at the same time. So you had this really weird situation in Syria where it was a complete, you know, five-sided fuster clock where you had the US CIA funding um, ISIS and then you had the Pentagon funding Kurdish militants. Both sides considered terrorists by the Syrian government which was also, and you know, both of those sides also considered anathema by the Turkish government which also considered the Syrian government anathema as well and directly opposed to, you know, Turkish uh, ambitions in the region. But the Turks, uh, the Syrian government was supported by Russia because they actually went to Russia, you know, Bashar al-Assad went to Russia when ISIS was 12 kilometers, just 12 kilometers away from Damascus and begged Putin for help. And Putin sent over um, some of the Wagner PMC boys and Russian aircraft and Russian um, military trainers, uh, defense personnel, you know, army personnel to help train Russia, uh, to train Syrian forces. And the result was, in fact, the complete or near complete destruction of ISIS. It wasn't the U.S. bombing the shit out of ISIS, as President Trump said. He was being he was grandstanding, as he usually does. It was, in fact, the Russians who, who destroyed ISIS in the sands of Syria. That's, that's the truth of it. So the United States has this long and deeply dishonorable history of backing terrorists and now is engaging in terrorist acts itself. This is the nature of the war we're fighting. On the other side of that war, you have nations and nation states basically bent on forging their own uh, destinies. You have Russia which is clearly willing to be partners and, and do trade with just about anybody. I mean, it's, it doesn't really matter. The Russians are not interested in imperial ambitions. Contrary to what the Western media wants you to believe, the Russians simply want to be left the hell alone to develop their own country. And that's what they're going to do, regardless of whether the West wants them to or not. The Russians are keen to foster active partnerships with what, whichever government wants their help, wants to trade with them. That is why Sergei Lavrov is greeted like a rock star whenever he goes on a tour of the world, whenever he goes to Africa or Latin America or India or China. Everybody is happy to see him because he brings Russian diplomacy. He brings trade and open friendship to other countries. He doesn't threaten. He doesn't tell them, you must do this. You must obey our will. He just says, look, you want to do a deal? Let's do a deal. That's all he says. This is a good way to deal with other countries. The Chinese understand it. The Indians understand it. And we're in this really odd situation where if you look back at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization um, conferences, 
and you look at how all of that played out. You look at um, the meeting in Samarkand uh, in Uzbekistan between all these various heads of state, and you look at you know this picture of Putin, Lukashenko, and Erdogan, and a bunch of other dignitaries sitting around a table. It's a very warm and friendly atmosphere. Putin was able to meet with uh, Narendra Modi and Xi Jinping, with whom he has very warm personal relationships. He has a very strong friendship with both leaders. Well, guess what? Both countries have major issues with each other along their uh, long border in the Himalayas, but they're able to put that to one side and work it out because they understand the threat being posed by the West. The Western world is not doing itself any favors in this war. And we are dealing with a situation where the, the entire world is splitting off into deeply hostile camps. You have the Western world fading into irrelevance and economic obscurity thanks to its own policies. I mean, think about how insane this is. The European economy is being torpedoed by the Americans for the sake of weakening Russia so that Russia, if Russia is weakened and falls, then somehow the United States can then take on China and weaken it. There's a very, very weird calculus going on. The idea being that if Russia is fatally undermined and broken up into different states where you know, the US has effective control of Russia's energy resources, then China is effectively encircled and has the United States to the east and then US proxies uh, to the north and west and can no longer really get its energy supplies and can no longer uh, act effectively and independently. Well, if that's the case, then it's not working. If that's the neo-clown strategy, the neoliberal neo-clown strategy, it's not working. The result of that strategy is the destruction of Europe. We're seeing Europe deindustrialize. We're seeing its living standards plummet. And we're seeing blowback effects on the United States as well. I mean, all you have to do is go through any big city in the U.S. today, and you'll see just absolute ruination. It's genuinely heartbreaking to watch. You look at New York City, you look at Philadelphia, Chicago, uh, Baltimore, Washington, D.C., you look through any of these big cities and you'll just see absolute degradation. I mean, homeless people out on the streets everywhere, drug addiction, um, you know, drug abuse, prostitution, open sewers on the street, garbage, amazingly uh, rapid rises in third world diseases like tuberculosis and cholera, even typhus, uh, coming back into force in what used to be the first world. It's, it's horrifying to see. I mean, if you want to live in a shithole country, live in India or live in you know, some part of Africa, anywhere in Africa, and you'd still, in some ways, be better off than you, than you would be in living in a big city in the United States. That's how bad things are getting. You look at the United Kingdom, it's not much better. There are entire cities within the UK that are basically uh, cauldrons, you know, pressure cookers of racial violence. Leicester in the UK recently saw massive sectarian riots. I mean, by British standards, not, you know, not by American standards, but by British standards, major riots between Hindu and Muslim South Asians. And both sides were egged on by provocateurs who live in these countries. And Mohammed Hijab is a well-known uh, 
Islamist uh, polemic, Islamic polemicist, not a very good one, but you know, I mean, Islam being what it is, uh, he's considered something of a rock star in that movement. He showed up on the streets of Leicester and he was basically telling gangs of thugs and hoodlums on the street to take the war to um, the, the mushrikun, the, the, the polytheists, which is how they see Hindus. This is what the West is devolving into. Now, I'm not saying that the other side doesn't have its problems. It plainly does. If you look at China, for example, China has some very serious structural issues. And they are running into serious economic, political, social problems of their own. Whether you listen to the Chinese government or you listen to some of the dissident Chinese voices of people who have left and uh, even of formerly very, very strongly patriotic Chinese who believed extremely strongly in the CCP and the nationalist ideology of the CCP, they're now saying, yeah, life in China sucks and we want out. We want to get out of here. Um, is that what's going to happen? Is the Chinese government going to fall? No, I don't believe it is. But what we're dealing with is a rapidly unifying power block that actually represents the majority of the world. If you look at the BRICS plus countries or the SCO or these other various organizations that exist around the world to promote the interests of the Eurasian powers, the African powers, the South American powers, mostly, I mean, South America, it's really Brazil. Um, you're looking at the vast majority of the world's population. We're talking about six out of eight billion people, and probably more, living in these countries, basically saying, we don't want what the West is offering. We want to chart our own course. We want to live our own lives. We want to follow our own development models. And that means we don't want to be under the thumb of the West. The Western Empire can't stand that. So it's launching a world war to stop that from happening. And these are the consequences. Massive inflation in the West. I mean, it's easily in the double digits. No matter what they tell you officially, it's easily twice that. So if you're living in the United States and they tell you inflation is 9%, it's at least 20% minimum in reality. And you just have to go to your local grocery store to figure this out. In the United Kingdom, it is definitely in excess of 20%. People can't pay their energy bills in mainland Europe. They can't pay their energy bills in the UK. The United States is a bit better off because it has plenty of energy resources, but Europe has, through its own stupidity and its own uh, ignorance over the last 30 years, cut itself off from sources of clean energy like nuclear power, like natural gas. It's denied itself the use of coal, which was very dumb because coal is by far the cheapest way to get efficient power out of the ground. It's gone fully green, which means fully potato, not quite as stupid as, you know, fully Ukrainian, but pretty much fully potato. And it's resulted in a situation where the, the entire continent is not capable of supporting itself. If you understand anything about economics, you will understand that economic power means having enough energy to drive or maintain a modern economy. If you don't have that, you don't have an economy. Europe doesn't have an economy anymore, and it's going to deindustrialize. It is deindustrialized. What does this mean for the future? What's going to happen? Well, first, let's point out the obvious fact. A terrorist attack like what the United States did to Nord Stream 
could not have happened under a strong and unified American government. Couldn't have happened. That is the classic sign of a government in complete disarray. What you're seeing with Biden is what I talked about in a previous podcast called the the three-way deep state civil war, in which I talked about how there are at least three major factions within the deep state that actually are vying for power and competing to try to take over um, the the, the power structure in the United States. There's the neo-clown completely ideological, completely insane faction, which is just driven by bloodlust and greed and this vision of manifest destiny, which does not understand the basics of history, economics, and politics. They're all driven, I mean, basically they're all history majors with no actual grounding in anything real or serious. There's the military-industrial complex, which looks for fat profits for the war machine, and then there's the Wall Street money men who just, you know, they're, they're not moral in any way. They just want to make a profit and they'll go wherever the money goes. The neo-clowns are driven by ideology, not money. The military industrial complex, they're driven by keeping profits flowing for their sector. And the Wall Street types are driven by keeping money flowing for Wall Street. But ultimately, all three of them want power. Which faction of the deep state created that that destruction. It may have been one alone. It was probably more than one because this required military intervention of some kind. But there's no question in my mind, something like this could not have happened under a strong and unified administration. When you have a weak and basically completely out of his mind dementia candidate running a country as powerful as the United States, you essentially have no check or balance against these various factions. You have no one who can stand there and say, you shall not. You have no one who can fire the people who do stupid things. And you have no one who can hold people accountable, ultimately as the sole source of authority. The result is what you see today. It's a completely dysfunctional, completely disconnected, crazed US government, which really is a terrorist state at this point. It's gone completely off the deep end. Now, I never thought I'd find myself saying that the United States is a terrorist uh, government. It's not a terrorist nation in the sense that the people are not terrorists, obviously. American people are still very, very good and wonderful people. But they're led by complete crazies. And those crazies are dragging us into nuclear Armageddon. What are they trying to do right now? They're trying to provoke Russia into a first strike use of a nuclear weapon. The Russians have shown amazing levels of patience and restraint thus far. That will last for as long as it takes for them to achieve their goals. But I think the Russians now understand with the attack on the Kerch Bridge, with the destruction of Nord Stream or the near destruction of Nord Stream, the West can no longer be trusted. And there appears to be a rapidly growing gulf of communication between the two countries. Major Scott Ritter did a very, very good interview with uh, General something or other. I have to go look it up. Um, He did an interview with a chap named... uh, I need to go figure this out. I think it's... uh, I think it's... It's not Vladimir... It's not Vladimir Kozin. 
It's uh, somebody else, but there was a uh, there was a general that he interviewed on Solovyov's um, program, in which like it was a joint effort with uh, Solovyov. Uh, Solovyov is a very famous uh, presenter in in Russia. He he runs a uh, a segment on Russia Savodnya, uh, where it's like a talk show that he's able to to, to speak and uh, discuss various things, but. What he said was effectively um, that the the Russian people um, or the, the the Russian Duma itself does not uh, consider a, the the use of nuclear weapons to be all that dangerous because um, I'm not joking about this because they don't feel like the the uh, they don't feel like NATO would be willing to take the risk of striking back at Russia. They don't feel like NATO would be willing to get its hands dirty and attack Russia itself, which is crazy. I mean, that's genuinely terrifying. But that's the gulf in communication that's taking place right now. It's genuinely horrifying to think that these people in Russia and the United States think that the use of a nuclear weapon in the theater of conflict would not invite massive retaliation from somebody else. The Russian side will not use a nuclear weapon as a first strike option. That much is very clear. The Russian doctrine is very, very clear on this subject. Nor, however, will the Russians um, hold back if they are attacked with nuclear weapons. And the very fact that people are throwing around this idea of, oh, well, you know, we can just chuck a nuclear bomb at somebody and that, that'll solve the problem. No, it's, it's insane. It's genuine. It's absolutely insane. But that's what people are doing. And it's, it's absolutely crazy. It's absolutely crazy that people are thinking like this on either side, but that's the reality. That's what they're that's what they're 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 contemplating as a way of um, kind of solving this issue, and that's why we could easily see this war turn into an all-out you know global Armageddon. This could only happen if both sides are led by really weak leaders. We have a weak leader in the United States. That's when things go really wrong because this is a guy who could easily be influenced into doing whatever some faction of the deep state wants him to. If he can easily be goaded into thinking, oh, well, you know, I need to launch a nuclear strike at somebody just because some advisor told me to do it. I mean, if you watch Biden in public, that's exactly what he's like. He's, he's completely mentally out of it. He has no capacity for independent thought. Russia, thank God, is not in the same boat. The Russian leadership is strong and it's unified. In fact, if you look at the Russian leadership, they actually have a different problem, which is that Putin is very much in the minority in his own government. He is the moderate. The rest of his government are serious hardliners who really, really are itching for war with the West because they understand that the West can no longer be trusted. Putin is the one desperately trying to hold them all back and say, you know what, no, let's keep this war contained. Let's not spill it over into the rest of Europe. Let's not have 
a repeat of World War II or three or whatever. Let's not do this anymore. We don't want um, to create conditions for a broader war with NATO. The Russian people are enraged by what they're seeing in Ukraine. They want action, decisive, firm action to be taken to roll back the Ukrainian advances in Kharkov. They want all of the territory of Kherson and Zaporozhye liberated. That means taking all of whatever is on the other side of the Dnieper River in Kherson region. Uh, they want Nikolaev and Odessa taken. They want to see Zaporozhye city taken. They want to see Kharkov taken. They definitely want, like I said, Odessa to become part of the Russian Federation. This is the minimum that they will accept as an honorable peace. But it means the destruction of Ukraine as a state, and the Russian people now are willing to accept that. They no longer see the government in Kiev as something that they can trust. They're no longer interested in working with the Western powers. They want to see NATO crushed and broken. Putin is the, 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 the hinge point, the, the, the focal point of all of this. And he has to find some way of balancing out the anger and the fury of his people against the pragmatic realities on the ground of keeping Russia strong and free without wrecking its economy and turning it into a war machine that just goes and conquers Europe all over again. He doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to restore the Soviet Union. And this is what most people don't understand about him. So what happens next? Where do we go next? Well, it's very clear that there's a massive military buildup happening on the Ukrainian border in Belarus and in Russia. 300,000 men have been called up to serve as conscripts in the Russian army to help them hold down the lines and preserve what they've gained. Okay, that will probably work. And we're seeing already the first of those mobilized recruits flowing into the DPR, actually into Donetsk region. And we should see more of them flowing into Lugansk region as well, and eventually into Kherson and Zaporozhye regions. Right now, it is what is known as the Rasputitsa, the uh, what literally the inhospitable season of travel or inhospitable travel season technically that's essentially the season where all the roads of ukraine and southern russia turn to mud because the 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 paving is not really there if you've got well-paved roads it's easy to travel through those regions but much of ukraine does not have well-paved roads because again the ukrainians i mean they wasted away everything that they were given 30 years ago when they declared independence they wasted all of their infrastructure. They wasted all of their economic potential. They wasted all of the industry, all of the technical expertise that this, the USSR gave them. I mean, Ukraine had everything it needed to be the great power of Europe, and it threw it all away. So you really can't hold much sympathy out for the Ukrainians. I mean, they don't deserve it. You now have a situation where the Ukrainians face imminent catastrophe unless they throw everything that they have left into one massive knockout punch to free all of Kherson and push through to Crimea. And that's what it looks like is going to happen. The Russians, I'm sure, are aware of this. I don't know what they've got planned to, reta to retaliate or respond, but the destruction or the attack, rather, on the Kerch Bridge today has definitely enraged them to the point where the Russian people will no longer accept one more inch of ground given to the Ukrainians. This is a very dangerous, flammable, combustible set of events. If Putin 
does not respond strongly, he's going to look very weak. It's going to cost him a lot of political capital in Russia, which means he's under tremendous pressure to do something. The Russians are not known for responding in petulant or tempestuous manner. They're known for taking action very violently, but in a very cold and clinical manner. This, I suspect, is going to be the response. We're going to see a, a massive bombing campaign, a massive strike campaign against critical Ukrainian infrastructure. We're going to see energy supplies going to the West essentially shut down because Ukraine controls actually some of the pipelines that run through to European territory, as does Poland, and they've shut down those pipelines already. Whatever pipeline uh, transits remain go through Turkstream and through Yamal Europe and um, one of the strings of Yamal Europe. The Russians may just decide to shut that down completely. If they choose to do so, then it will be force majeure. It will be some sort of excuse that they've concocted saying force majeure due to such and such, you know, sanctions, some issue. They'll just shut down completely any, any more transits to particular countries. And then Europe freezes. Uh, Ukraine is, the West is already running out of its ability to supply serious weapons to Ukraine. They've supplied pretty much everything they can. Now they're stuck with small arms and training, and that's it. It's not going to be enough. So we're coming to a culminating point in the conflict where things could spill over very, very quickly and very easily. Add to that the pressure that you have in the US from the midterm elections, the Biden maladministration knows that they're under pressure to do something. It's not Biden himself. I mean, he's a vegetable. But the people around him know that they're under pressure to do something. If anything happens, it's going to be in the next couple of weeks. And that will decide the fate of this world war. We are in a world war. We need to understand that. We need to adjust our mental frameworks accordingly. And we need to realize that as horrific as this is, and as horrific as it's going to get, the only way this is going to be solved is through the destruction of the Western world as it stands right now. It will come back eventually as something hopefully cleaner and better, but the empire of lies has to be destroyed. And with God's help, that's exactly what's going to happen because the empire cannot stand as it is. This is too dangerous. It is too reckless. It is too out of control. And the rest of the world understands this. Russia, first and foremost, understands this. So we're going to see a rapid escalation, I think, in the economic war, in the military situation on the ground in Ukraine. I think the Russians understand they need to push for complete and outright annihilation of the, of the Ukrainian army. And I think that's exactly what's going to happen over the next couple of months. Um, Ukraine as a country is finished. Europe as an economy is finished. And the eventual likely result is the catastrophic and complete defeat of the West, but not before another few major incidents that result in serious loss of life. Let's hope it doesn't come to that, but I'm not optimistic. Well, that's it for me. It's been almost an hour. I'll leave it at that. Uh, thank you very much, as always, for tuning in. I really appreciate it. Make sure you click on the affiliate links in the description box to check out Surfshark VPN and some of the other offers that I have available. Uh, it really helps support my work, my efforts to get my take on the truth out there. And uh, make sure you join my Telegram channel as well, because that's a great community. It's a great place to get news and updates. And this has been Didactic Mind, episode 104, 
World War Now, and I am Didact, signing off.